since it has been a couple of weeks, uh, let's take a moment to put ourselves back into the context of this account and where we are in Luke chapter 1. We have Mary. Mary is a young teenage girl in a village of Galilee called Nazareth. Uh, She is betrothed to a local carpenter named Joseph, who is, by all accounts, a decent and godly man. Mary and Joseph are in the time of betrothal. That means that she and Joseph are separated for a season while he is preparing the home that the two of them will live in and is making other preparations for their new life together. She is waiting for her wedding day. She is waiting for the day when Joseph will come for her. Likely he will be followed by a a parade of friends and family. And as he comes to take her to himself, there will be a great wedding feast. And the village of Nazareth will celebrate throughout the night. Sometimes these wedding feasts even lasted days. So that's what she's waiting for. And in the midst of that season, her life is turned upside down as she is suddenly and surprisingly visited by an angel named Gabriel. She is now pregnant with a child, miraculously conceived in her womb by the very decree of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the angel Gabriel told her when he visited her that this miracle child will be the Messiah. The one the people of God has been waiting for. The long promised king whose kingdom will last not a few decades, not even a few centuries. This king's kingdom will last forever. Who can she turn to? Who is possibly going to believe her story? Who could possibly understand what Mary is experiencing? Well, Mary's cousin Elizabeth, a hundred miles south, is also having a miracle child. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah have conceived, despite Elizabeth being old and beyond childbearing years. Her son, John, is to be born in just a few months. And the same angel that visited Mary had told Zechariah that his son would be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so Mary takes the trip down to visit her cousin Elizabeth. What happens when Mary walks into the door of cousin Zechariah and Elizabeth's house? The spirit comes upon Elizabeth and upon her unborn child. The baby John, still in the womb, leaps when he hears Mary's voice. And prophetically, Elizabeth suddenly cries out that Mary has been blessed by God and that the baby she is carrying is indeed the Lord. We can imagine how shocked and how encouraged young Mary was to hear this word from Elizabeth, this word from God through Elizabeth, that she was right to believe the angel despite how crazy it all sounded. She didn't dream it. She didn't imagine the whole thing. 
Here is someone else who knows what God is doing. Who is some, here is someone else who is, who is in what God is doing and can help encourage Mary over the coming weeks. And so last time that we were in this passage, we saw what Elizabeth said under the power of the Spirit. But now it's Mary's turn to speak. And if you'll remember from our study of Genesis some years ago, we noted that so many of the most important works that God has ever done in the history of the world are marked in the Bible by a song. The creation of man, marked by poetry, a song, right? In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Notice in your Bibles, it's not written as prose, it's written as poetry. That's why it's centered as it is. It's song when God creates man, the pinnacle of his creation. The first gospel promise of Genesis 3 The first time the gospel is ever proclaimed, it's given in a song. When Jacob, later called Israel, is to be born, the announcement comes in a song, in poetry. The 12 tribes of Israel are celebrated through the song of blessing and curses spoken by Jacob. The exodus out of Egypt is celebrated by a song of Moses and a song of Miriam. On and on, we can trace how the Bible uses poetry and song to mark the most important events and works that God has done. And so we're really not that surprised when we're thinking about that here it comes the coming of the Messiah. Here now, you're entering into the most important work that God has ever done and that God will ever do. The coming of God to earth as a man to live and to die and to rise again for the salvation of sinners. And we find the occasion marked by spirit-inspired song. First, a song from Mary. And then after that, a song from Zechariah. We still do this. We mark special occasions with songs. We sing happy birthday because... The birth of someone who's important in our lives is is an important occasion to remember. When Christmas time comes, we sing Christmas carols. There's something about the incarnation and the miracle that happened there, the birth of the Son of God, that makes us want to sing. But our Christmas carols were not the first Christmas carols. These songs of Mary and Zechariah are in many ways the first Christmas carols. Unless, of course, you count some of the Psalms, which themselves promised the Son of God coming as the Messiah to earth. Maybe those are the first Christmas carols. So here in our passage, we have Mary filled with the Holy Spirit, and she breaks out in song. And this song, like Elizabeth's blessing, was undoubtedly remembered by these ladies, recorded by these ladies, They would never forget when the Spirit came upon them in this way and the things that they said to each other. And these things were then given to Dr. Luke, who wrote them down under the guidance of the Spirit that we would have them today and that God would do us good through them. So let's see for ourselves the song of Mary. Look at verse 46. The song of Mary, verse 46. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then we're told that Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her own home. Well, this song has been known really throughout Christian history as the Magnificat. And that title comes from the opening of the song, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. Uh, the song is rich and sweet in truth. And so our plan is to chew on this song and to uh, soak up the flavors of this song and be nourished by it over the next couple of weeks. So let me tell you where we're going. This morning, we're going to look at verses 46 through 48, which are about God's kindness to Mary and how she responds in gratitude and praise. Uh, next Sunday, we'll be focusing on missions, Harvest Sunday. After that, we'll come back and look at verses 50 through 53, the great principle that is celebrated in this song, namely that God's mercy is for those who fear him. And then finally, we will spend time in a few weeks looking at verses 54 through 56, reminding ourselves that our God is a God who always keeps his promises. So that's our game plan. So our aim this morning is to look at verses 46 through 48. And I want to draw your attention to three truths in these verses. And here we go. Number one, it is proper that God should be magnified by all who have received good from his hand. So let me say it again. Here's the first truth I'm drawing out of these verses. It is proper, good, right, fitting that God should be magnified by all who have received good from his hand. Now, what does it mean to magnify God? Do not picture a magnifying glass. That's the opposite of what we mean. A magnifying glass takes something that's tiny and makes it bigger than it is. An ant is small. You put an ant under a magnifying glass, and suddenly the ant appears much bigger. But it's not. In reality, an ant is small. Similarly, don't picture a microscope. Microscopes take very small things and make them appear bigger than they are. We are not magnifying God in that way. God is not small. And we do not magnify him by making him look bigger than he is. That's not even possible. When you think about magnifying God, you need to think about using a telescope. Think about how the planet Jupiter 
is 88,695 miles in diameter, 1,300 times the size of Earth. Uh, you could fit 1,300 Earths inside of the planet Jupiter. Yet when we look at Jupiter, if you see it at all in the sky, it looks tiny. It looks, it looks so small. And so when you look through a telescope, it gets bigger for you. you. You don't get to see it as big as it really is. Even with a telescope, we only get a small taste of the glory and the grandeur that is this, this large planet. But a telescope helps us to take something that's massive, but hard for us to see, and brings it closer to us. Helps us to get more of a sense of just how massive it is. When the Bible talks about magnifying God, that's the idea. God is so much bigger. God is so much greater than we can possibly imagine or conceive. We will never be able to see all that God is. An eternity will not be long enough for us to explore all the depths and the wonder of all that God is. And yet, at times, he can seem really small to us. In fact, for fallen man, fallen man tends to neglect God. Fallen man tends to demean God. Fallen, God t- fallen man tends to forget that God is this massive, omnipresent being who is with us at all times and in every place. We magnify God by showing his greatness. We magnify God by doing anything that helps anyone, even ourselves, get a greater sense of the grandeur and glory that he really has. We're not taking something small and making it look big. We're taking someone who is incomprehensibly big and trying to show something of his glory in a world where most are blind to his glory and do not see him for who he is. Now, even if God had never done anything good for us, Even if God had never acted on your behalf in any way, he would still be worthy of being magnified by us. His very character is praiseworthy. His very nature is praiseworthy. God is worthy of praise just because of who he is if he never did a single thing. But what we see in this passage is that God should be particularly magnified by those who have received good from his hand. When God has been good to you, it is right to respond by showing his greatness. Psalm 13, 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So why are you going to sing to the Lord? Because he's dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 31, 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. Psalm 52, 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it. Psalm 116, 2. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Over and over and over, the Bible teaches us that we should perform actions which show how great our God is because he's shown his greatness to us through gracious acts. That is, God hasn't just told you he's great. God has shown you that he's great 
and things he has done for you. He has been specifically good to you. And when God has been specifically good to you, the only right response is praise and honor. Imagine going to a show where you see the most amazing performance you have ever seen. Maybe the person sings with the most amazing talent and skill you've ever heard from a vocalist. Or maybe they begin to play the piano and you've never seen anyone play with such talent and so amazingly. Whatever it is, can you imagine experiencing the performance of a lifetime and when it's over, no one applauds. Everyone just grabs their coats and goes on. There's no cheering. There's no standing ovation. There's no, not even just compliments about how the, the show, no, it's just, it's just everybody goes home. You know what? That doesn't happen. You know why that doesn't happen? God has wired us in such a way that we just don't live that way. When we experience something good, there is something intrinsic in us that wants to respond with some sort of praise. When we see someone with great talent, when we see someone using great skill, we, we applaud, we cheer, we, we show honor in some way. The fact is, there are some things in this world that are truly praiseworthy. And to fail to praise them is sin. To see something so glorious, and yet to feel nothing and to say nothing and to do nothing would be evil. Well, at the very pinnacle of all that is praiseworthy is God himself. And God has gone to great lengths to show you his goodness. And therefore, we have a special obligation to magnify his name. God made you. He made you. You, you wouldn't be here without him. And then God has given you so many benefits of this kindness. It's, it's God who causes your heart to beat this moment. It's God who causes your brain to be waving this moment. It's God who's causing oxygen to fill your lungs this moment. If you had any inkling or desire to be in God's house today, hey, that's God's grace in your life. If you've come to know Christ, that is God's grace in your life. If you didn't die in a car accident on the way here, that is God's grace in your life. I mean, everything around you, every moment is God just showing you his goodness, showing you his kindness. And for us not to respond in magnifying God for his goodness to us would be evil. I wonder if you ever stop and just look around and ask yourself, is this really all there is? Is there not something more to life than this? Uh, it's not necessarily that you're unhappy. It's not necessarily that you're discontent. But maybe there's that nagging sense of disappointment or that nagging sense of disillusionment. When you're a child, there's so much possibility, right? It, the whole world is open to you. What are you going to be when you grow up? I don't know. I might be an astronaut, right? I might swim with dolphins, or I, I might go be, you know, and, and, and just the whole world is out there. And then, and, and then you get older, you fall into the humdrum of everyday life. 
Uh, you begin to see some of those possibilities of when you were a kid slip away. So those dreams you had, you realize are not really attainable. And there can be a kind of sadness. Oh, this is what my life is going to be like. In fact, even those who have reached high pinnacles in society, Hollywood actors, professional athletes, top politicians, we find them over and over again testifying that they're still dissatisfied. That that even reaching the top of their field hasn't been the fulfilling thing that they thought it would be. Is there nothing more? C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And it isn't merely that we were made for another world. It's that we were made for God himself. Uh, One of the first books I ever read by a Puritan was a little book by a guy named Henry Skugel. And I read it because I was told it was the book that George Whitfield read that led him to Christ. It's a great little book. And in it, he talks about the inextinguishable thirst, the inextinguishable thirst that is bound up in the human soul, that only God in his unsearchable greatness can meet that inextinguishable thirst. Everything else falls short. Mount Hermon, here's what I want us to understand here. You were created to be a worshiper. You were created to magnify something. You were created. This is just a part of how you were made. You were made to be a praiser of someone. It is no accident that you have an inextinguishable thirst in your soul to be satisfied by something massively great. You and I were not created or designed to be the ones in the spotlight receiving the adoration and the applause and the praise. No, we were designed to be part of the great congregation of humanity who looks at God, beholds God, finds joy in God, and then responds in praise and in adoration and in honor. Wait a minute, Justin. That seems awfully selfish of God creating a world where he's going to be the center of attention, right? Uh, If God is really a good God, why would he design the whole universe to be centered on himself? And the answer, of course, is that God is good. He is infinitely good. And that's why the whole universe must center around him. Uh, Would we consider God a good God if all of creation and all of history centered around something else lesser than him? Would we consider God a good God if he had created us to find our joy and to magnify and praise someone else or anything else other than he who is most praiseworthy? The fact is God is infinitely good and therefore he loves all that is good with an infinite love. And that means God loves himself with an infinite love. And he is the only being in the universe for whom it is absolutely right for him to be self-centered. And if he wasn't self-centered, he would be an idolater and not God. Our God is a God who takes deep, deep pleasure in being God. 
He loves all that he is. He loves his wisdom. He loves his goodness. He loves his justice. He loves his mercy. And now, in calling you and me to see him and to appraise him and to extol him and being kind to us and blessing us that we would magnify him, he's really doing something amazing. He's sharing his own joy in himself with you. That's what he's doing. He's taking his own delight in being God and overflowing so that you get to share in his delight in who he is. And so when you read the Bible and you hear God saying, as in the example of Mary, praise me, love me, adore me, don't picture God as having some sort of need for your praise. Don't picture God as having some sort of sinful desire to be praised. No, these verses are God delighting in himself, savoring himself, and saying to you, come be a part of my eternal joy. The reality is that all people have received good from God. All people owe their existence and every breath to his kindness, and therefore all people ought to do like Mary and magnify God. And one great mark of rebellious, sinful humanity is that we refuse to do this. Here is something that shows the wickedness of mankind. Here is how Paul in Romans 1 explains the downward spiral of what sin has done to the human race. It ought to be the most obvious thing in the world. God made us. God sustains us. God gives us everything we have. We ought to honor God. And what does the human race do? Romans 1 verse 21 Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You want to know what sin has done to the human race? It's caused us to take the one who is most worthy of being honored and to want to replace him with anything at all except for him. We don't want to honor God by nature. At the very heart of the human condition, at the very core of why we by nature are deserving of God's wrath and why the human race is in such a mess is this reality. God is infinitely worthy of our praise and we refuse to give it. We suppress the glorious truth of who God is. We close our eyes. We keep our mouth shut. We don't want to honor God. We don't want to give thanks to God. Because doing that would mean humbling ourselves and acknowledging that He is the great God of the universe and has authority over us. And that's what prideful, sinful man doesn't want to do. Confess that He is Lord and that we ought to submit. And yet, Mount Hermon, oh, by the way, I should warn you, the first point is by far the longest point. The, last, the other two are going to just fly by. So. Uh, let me just say, the greatness of God is the reason we exist. At 1 Corinthians 10.31, we quote it all the time. Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, you are to do all to the glory of God. And this is the great business of what we'll be doing in heaven. In paradise itself, as we live every day, 
And the wondrous joy as the greatness of our God surrounds us everywhere. Everything we will be doing as God's image bearers will be showing to God, to one another, to ourselves, to the angels, the magnificence of the God who made us and sustains us and works through us. When you magnify God today, when you glorify God today, you are doing the business of heaven here on earth. So what's our first point from this passage? That we who have received good from God ought to particularly be about the work of magnifying him, showing how great he is to the world. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, here's our second point. We magnify God by rejoicing in him. We magnify God by rejoicing in him. Do you see the connection? In verses 46 and 47, between magnifying God, showing his greatness, and rejoicing in him. So make sure you see it in the text, right? Verses 46, 47, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now just to be clear, the Bible uses the words soul and spirit interchangeably to talk about the inner person. So it's not as if Mary has a soul that's over here magnifying the Lord, and then there's some other part of Mary called her spirit over here that's rejoicing in God as her Savior. No, her soul, her spirit, these are the same. Okay, These are the same part of her. This is her inner person. The soul that is magnifying the Lord is the spirit that is rejoicing in God. These two things happen together. These two things happen simultaneously. And that's because it is as our soul rejoices in God that we magnify him and show his greatness. Make sure you get this. If you want to live for the glory of God, make sure you get this. God is seen to be truly great in the joy of his people. God is seen to be truly great when others see in us that God has become such a rock for us, such a fortress for us, that we can rejoice even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering. The joy that God gives his people through his kindness to us is one of the greatest preachers in the world. Of just how great he truly is. Your joy preaches, church. Your joy testifies to the world about your God. Now, many of you know John Piper's famous slogan. I think it's absolutely true. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And Piper's point there is simply that God is glorified not just through our words. God is glorified not just through our works. God is glorified through our words and our works done joyfully. We aren't just to give a cup of cold water to those who need it in Jesus' name. We're to give a cup of cold water to those who need it in Jesus' name with a smile on our face and joy in our hearts because God has given us so much more. Because God has met our deepest needs. It is in the joy of what God has done for us That we're to live and to act for God's glory. This is why the Bible commands us rejoice always. And again I say rejoice. It's not enough to speak God's praises. It's not enough to perform acts of love. You're to sing God's praises in joy. You're to perform those acts of love in joy. 
Because that's how others see the greatness of your God. Christ is the fountain of living waters and we find all that we need in him. And it's in that joy that we glorify him. And so we read in Psalm 1 that the godly man doesn't just meditate on God's law. He delights in God's law. What makes this man godly? Not just that he meditates, it's that he delights in the law of God. We read in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. Well, now wait a minute. If one person is happy when they give and the other person is sad when they give, but they both give the same amount, right? Money is money. Doesn't it make the same impact? No, no, no. God says, you want to know what really glorifies me? The cheerful giver. The one who gives because of what I've done for them. That's what shows the world how great I am. When Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, he says, love, top of the list. Second only to love, joy. And what do we see from Mary? She is rejoicing particularly in God as her Savior. Do you see that verse 47? She is rejoicing in God, her Savior. Mary has been told and understands that this child she is carrying is going to be the Messiah, the great King, the one who will cause all who trust in him to be in right relationship with God. Through the son she is carrying, God will save her. God will bring her into paradise itself. And it's this, it is this in particular that is causing her to sing out in joy. So much of God should make us want to sing and dance. So much of who God is, so much of what God has done should make us want to rejoice. But surely nothing should make us want to sing and dance like this reality. God has acted to save me. God has been my savior. God has saved me from my sin. God has saved me from my guilt. God has saved me from the hell that I deserve. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, are you rejoicing in God as your Savior? Is he being glorified as you live each day in the joy of the fact that you have been redeemed? And then our third truth. Here it is. We magnify our God by proclaiming what he has done for us. We magnify our God by proclaiming what he has done for us. So this is just who we are. When we're really joyful about something, we cannot keep it to ourselves. When God has been good to us or when others have been good to us or we've just experienced something that made us happy, it becomes like a fire in our bones and we have to let it out. If I'm watching football and my team gets the interception and he's running it back for a touchdown, I'm yelling at the TV and I'm saying, oh, left, left, watch out, go that way, touchdown. I'm like, ha, ah, and I get excited and I'm yelling, I'm like, Jonathan, bitch, come here, look at this. Why? Because they like to remind me they can't hear me, right? They don't know that I'm yelling at them, but it's the nature of joy to want to share your excitement. It's the nature of joy to want to, to proclaim what is going on and what has happened. So also, if you come to know God truly and the joy that only he can give, then you will magnify him by proclaiming to others what he has done for you. And that's what Mary does here. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. 
and holy is his name. In other words, she doesn't just say, my soul is rejoicing in God. She gives reasons. She gives a list. Here's what God has done for me. Let me tell you why I'm rejoicing. She proclaims what God has done. When people see you living in joy, they should ask you, what what makes you so cheerful? And you should be able to say, I am so glad you asked. Let me tell you what my God has done for me. Like Mary, we were in a humble estate. You were probably not particularly talented or attractive or wealthy or famous when God saved you. And you were shot through with sin. And you were full of guilt before a holy God. And yet God has looked upon you. He has caused his face to shine upon you with blessing and grace and mercy. And like Mary, who has been remembered from every generation as one blessed by God, you too, as a Christian, are going to be known for all eternity as one of those blessed by God. You're one of his blessed ones, church. You're one of his blessed ones. And it's not because of anything you did, but because of God and his grace and what he did for you. God has done great things for you. He sent his son for you. He caused his son to die for you. He rose him from the dead. He intercedes for you. God came into your life. He interrupted your life. He gave you faith. He brought you to himself. God has done great things for you. You magnify him now by proclaiming it. Let me just ask you. What has God done for you? Does your family know it? Do your friends know it? Do your co-workers know it? Do you magnify God by proclaiming what he has done on your behalf? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. Can you sing that with honesty? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. When's the last time you proclaimed it? Outside of these walls. Now, Herman, let us live for the glory of our God. Let us live to magnify his name. There's no greater purpose. Let us magnify God by rejoicing in him, especially as our Savior. Let us magnify God by proclaiming to others what he has done for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...